the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. Later in the second hour, we're going to hear from Michael Knowles. He's the author of Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. That's coming up at the top of the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. And we'll take a look at whether or not 9-11 brought uh, unity and revival. Well, an article in Christianity Today suggests it brought neither. We'll tell tell you more about that later in the 5 o'clock hour. First, a look at some of the day's headlines. It's 20 years after 9-11, and you might be less safe than you were 20 years ago. The Taliban, which were the people that really allowed 9-11 to happen because they let al-Qaeda work in Afghanistan. They protected them. 20 years later, they will be more powerful than when they started. Well, that's a gift, essentially, uh, that uh, was given to them by our chaotic withdrawal from the region. Well, the president thought it wouldn't be ugly because the administration thought the Afghans would just let us walk away from the country. The irony was he couldn't plan for it uh, not being true. So the evacuation had to be... uh, Uh, No plan, plan, because, well, it's uh, just going to get out. We're just going to get out and leave. Well, it means you have no um, contingencies. You don't plan with allies. You don't get the interpreters out. You don't process visas. You don't do anything because you don't want to signal you're leaving. You just, although a date was uh, was given, you just want to. You just uh, want to, and you're gone the next morning. Well, once the Taliban uh, took advantage of that, they essentially... um, uh, took over the evacuation process, um, and we were at the mercy of the Taliban and what they would allow or what they might forbid. And, of course, it turned into a nightmare. Now, there are still Americans left there. There are still Afghans left there. And the question is whether or not at some point in the not-too-distant future, or perhaps the distant future, Afghanistan will become a haven uh, for other terrorist groups and will face events similar to what we experienced back in 2001. One can only hope and pray that that will not be the case but it does raise serious questions. Well, today, um, the uh, uh, House Democrats um, defended President uh, Biden's uh, hasty withdrawal of the military from Afghanistan during a hearing of the Foreign Affairs Committee in which Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was grilled over the administration's handling of that exit. Representative Gregory Meeks, the committee's chairman, said ending the war in Afghanistan was never going to be easy and repeatedly slammed Biden's critics over his execution of the withdrawal last month. Well, I think we can all agree it wasn't going to be easy, but it certainly could have been planned better. And uh, some of what we saw could have been avoided. Disentangling ourselves, Meeks went on to say, from the war in Afghanistan was never going to be easy. And for my friends who presume a clean solution for the withdrawal existed, I would welcome hearing what exactly a smooth withdrawal from a messy, chaotic 20-year war looks like. In fact, I've yet to hear the clean withdrawal option because I don't believe one exists. Well, there certainly was a cleaner withdrawal, and it began with evacuating 
U.S. citizens and allies before the military, but I won't belabor that. They are masking their displeasure, he went on to say, with criticism, but fail to offer feasible alternatives. Once again, we are seeing domestic politics ingested into foreign policy, end quote. Well, Meeks also criticized former President Donald Trump for his negotiations with the Taliban during his time in office. Meeks said that in addition to Blinken, the committee should hear from former officials in Trump's administration as well as the Obama-Bush administrations. In his questioning of Blinken on Monday, Representative Brad Sherman, a Democrat from California, argued that there was an ongoing stampede last month at the Kabul airport where the U.S. carried out its evacuation and that there is simply no way the administration could have had an orderly or successful stampede. Well, again, that's overlooking other possibilities in timing. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken dodged a question from GOP Representative Michael McCall of Texas on whether or not Russian President Vladimir Putin threatened President Biden about developing intelligence capabilities near Afghanistan. Now, McCall is the ranking member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He asked Blinken if it was true that the Russian president had threatened Biden regarding intelligence installations in the region. Is it true that President Putin threatened the president of the United States, saying he could not build intelligence capabilities in the region, McCall asked? Well, Blinken dodged that question, saying the question McCall asked was important, but that the pair needed to take up the inquiry in another setting. Now, that may, in fact, be true. But it is certainly frustrating. Blinken testified before the House Foreign Affairs Committee today over the administration's uh, troop withdrawal from Afghanistan. And while Blinken faced aggressive questions from Republicans, Democrats on the committee largely rushed to his defense. I mentioned uh, Representative Meeks, the committee's chairman. Um, said uh, ending the war in Afghanistan was never going to be easy. Disentangling was always going to be difficult. Well, the White House on Monday said flights carrying Afghan refugees to the United States remain paused for at least an additional seven days at the request of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention after measles cases were detected among recent arrivals. The White House on Friday first announced that the U.S. temporarily suspended those flights. Principal Deputy uh, Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre on Monday told reporters that those flights are still being halted just out of an abundance of caution. Well, Jean-Pierre said Operation Allies Welcome flights into the United States remain paused at the request of the CDC for at least seven additional days, again, out of an abundance of caution because of recent diagnosed cases of measles among Afghans who recently arrived in the U.S. Jean-Pierre said individuals who have been diagnosed with measles were being housed separately in accordance with public health guidelines. And the CDC has begun full contact tracing, she said. Well, Fox News first reported last week that Fort McCoy Army Base in Wisconsin, one of a number of bases involved in processing Afghan refugees, had identified a case of measles. An internal government email uh, said the base confirmed a case of the measles on Sunday. All those who had been in contact with the infected person at base had been isolated and post-exposure um, and uh, inoculations are in process. The CDC describes measles as a highly contagious virus that can be spread by coughing, sneezing, and by people breathing contaminated air or touching infected surfaces and then their faces. It says the virus is so contagious that if one person has it, up to 90% of the people close to that person who are not immune will also be infected and that the virus can live up to two hours in an airspace even after an infected person leaves the area. According to the CDC, Afghanistan has the seventh highest number of measles cases in the world. And on Friday, the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said the U.S. is also exploring efforts to vaccine, a rather vaccinate evacuees while they are still overseas.
You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll hear an interview with Michael Knowles. His book, Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. We'll also consider whether or not there was unity and a revival that followed the events of 9-11-2001. Well, according to the U.S. State Department, Oregon is among the 15 states that have reached out as welcoming communities for Afghan refugees. Within Oregon, the places most likely to locate these refugees will be Portland and Salem, according to the Medford Mail Tribune. The number of expected refugees could be anywhere from 50,000 to 200,000 nationally. Now, this is a great opportunity. I know there are concerns about the vetting process, and we don't know uh, if everyone who uh, is coming to the United States should legitimately be here. But that aside, it's a tremendous opportunity uh, for the church to embrace and welcome uh, these Afghan citizens, many of whom did support the efforts uh, in uh, by the United States. And it's a tremendous opportunity to share and extend the love of Christ. So look for opportunities to do just that. If you'd like uh, help in uh, preparing yourself for that effort. You might want to consider redeeming the nation's ministry that helps to not only communicate the gospel to Muslim communities around the world, but can also help us here at home uh, know how to approach our new neighbors in a way that uh, reflects the love of Christ. So check that out. Well, President Biden announced that his administration would develop rules to compel large companies to mandate coronavirus vaccine for employees and require weekly negative test results for any unvaccinated workers. In some cases, that isn't even an option. You're either vaccinated or you're unemployed. The rules will be developed by the Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration, according to the president, and applied to companies with 100 or more workers. We're going to protect vaccinated workers from unvaccinated co-workers, the president said in a speech at the White House. I thought that's what the vaccine was for, but that's another subject. Well, the plan is part of a larger initiative by the administration that includes requiring vaccinations for all federal employees and workers for federal contractors, as well as for health care workers in most institutions that receive Medicare or Medicaid. The administration also called on all states to mandate vaccinations for teachers and other school employees. And during the press briefing earlier on Thursday, a reporter asked the White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, how bold the president is willing Willing to be as far as the private sector is uh, concerned in the vaccine mandate area. Well, even if uh, they don't have federal contracts, uh, can the Department of Labor or anybody else compel major employers, large employers to enforce vaccine mandates on their employees? The reporter uh, inquired. Yes, stay tuned, she responded. Well, the requirement could be enforced with a $14,000 fine per violation and would affect two-thirds of the nation's workforce. Now think about that for a moment. Two-thirds of the nation's workforce, according to a report by NBC. The number one group that is vaccine-resistant are PhDs. The number two group, thinking back uh, to the abuse of the medical community and the government, are African Americans. Remember the Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, this uh, this is going to be very interesting. Are you going to deprive certain groups of the opportunity to work and to um uh, to receive an education, this is where we're uh, where we're headed, and these are the kinds of questions that are likely to come up in lawsuits that are already being uh, formed. Well, the president is also set to issue a new executive order that will change an earlier policy that allowed employees to submit to frequent testing or other strict protocols to avoid having to receive the shots. 
And yet another top-down measure, Healthcare facilities have to require their staff to be vaccinated as a condition of Medicare and Medicaid reimbursements. Uh, such a requirement would apply to about 17 million workers at 50,000 uh, and um, 50,000 health care providers. So this has the impact to deprive these facilities of employees where they're already um, shorthanded. Well, the president's mandate for employers with more than 99 employees to require COVID-19 vaccinations is likely going to face some legal challenges from employers and perhaps from states knowledgeable observers uh, pointed out. Well, in remarks at the White House, the president said Thursday that he had directed the Labor Department to develop an emergency regulation giving the Occupational Safety and Health Administration the authority to enforce this national vaccine mandate for larger employers, again, being defined as 100 employees and above. Now, while some hailed uh, the president for taking strong action beyond the federal workforce, others expressed disbelief at what they considered authoritarian measures. Four things to know as the government's uh, vaccine requirements are likely going to play out in court and they will what states are saying already some republican state attorneys general are suggesting legal challenges to the administration's move on friday the texas attorney general ken paxton outright announced a lawsuit on twitter calling the mandate and employers on employers of 100 or more workers the most unconstitutional illegal thing i've ever seen out of any administration in modern american history end quote now is that true The courts will decide. The president was asked about potential state challenges to his vaccine mandate while speaking on Friday at a school in the District of Columbia. And he said, have at it. He added, I am so disappointed that particularly some Republican governors have so uh, cavalier, have been so cavalier with the health of these kids, so cavalier with the health of their communities. We're playing for real here. This isn't a game. Well, no one's uh, suggesting that it's a game and it's rather insulting to suggest just the same. But nonetheless, It will be on sooner rather than later. By the way, I would encourage you to listen to Dr. Christine Park's testimony on a uh, Michigan um, House Bill 4471, in which she enunciates what many PhDs and other healthcare professionals uh, who are on par with the uh, the loudest voices on the subject have to say about the vaccine. I found it fascinating, and you may as well. Another thing to look for, legal grounds to oppose the mandates. In this particular case, individual personal freedoms are not likely the question, as the president tells private companies what to do and puts jobs on the line. That's what the vice president and director of constitutional studies at the Libertarian Cato Institute points out. The legal analysis here is not focused on individual rights, but federal powers. Uh, he referred to the mandate as a constitutional triple threat. First, he said, is the constitutional issue of separation of powers. As controversial as it was, Congress passed the Affordable Care Act mandate that Americans purchase health insurance and wasn't imposed by President Barack Obama. It is not in the executive branch enumerated powers, Shapiro points out, noting that uh, he is pro-vaccine but anti-mandate. Second, Shapiro said states traditionally have regulated public health matters. Some legal experts contend that Biden has the power to impose OSHA mandates on companies through the Constitution's Commerce Clause. That provision allows Congress to regulate commerce among states and between foreign nations. 
1970, Congress passed the Occupational Safety and Health Act, Act rather, which established the agency and included emergency temporary provisions. Requiring many companies to make vaccines a condition of employment is further removed from the Commerce Clause than the Obamacare mandates for the individuals to buy and companies to supply health insurance. Also, the U.S. Supreme Court in 2012 upheld Obamacare's so-called individual mandate, but rejected the Commerce Clause argument and instead called the mandate a tax. I don't know of any federal vaccine mandates. Shapiro pointed out the level of uh, government of uh, government is important. Vaccine requirements before going to school are at the state, municipal or local level. Third, forcing businesses to require their employees to be vaccinated is not a proper use of federal power. White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain, a longtime Biden aide, retweeted a comment from NBC News correspondent Stephanie Rule that said OSHA doing this vax mandate as an emergency workplace safety rule is the ultimate workaround for the federal government to require vaccinations. Well, the president may have made a poor move legally and politically. Jonathan Turley, a law professor at George Washington University, wrote on their website. He went on to say the problem is that the thing being worked around is the Constitution. Turley wrote, courts will now be asked to ignore the admission and uphold a self-admitted evasion of constitutional protections. He added the workaround was needed because, as some of us have previously said during both the Trump and Biden administrations, the federal government does not have clear authority to impose public health mandates. Authority for such mandates has traditionally been recognized within state authority. Also, the Supreme Court precedent. In 1905, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled 7-2 to two in the case of Jacobson versus Massachusetts that the city of Cambridge, Massachusetts, Massachusetts rather, and thus other local governments could levy fines against individuals who refused to take the smallpox vaccine. In 1922, the high court ruled unanimously that the case of Zucht versus King to uphold the power of states to require vaccinations before children attended public schools. But a recent ruling could bear on on Biden's actions. The Supreme Court last month determined that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention lacked the authority to impose a national moratorium on evictions during the pandemic. The high court ruled in the case of Alabama Association of Realtors versus the Department of Health and Human Services. The Supreme Court slapped down the CDC's imposition of a nationwide eviction moratorium. John Malcolm, director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation, pointed out, Certainly, I think you will see similar lawsuits filed challenging OSHA's authority to impose a draconian nationwide vaccine mandate. Malcolm said the only historical precedent for such executive actions may be mandates imposed during World War II by President Franklin Roosevelt, presidential historian and author Craig Shirley points out. But Shirley noted Roosevelt acted during wartime. Still, he predicted that Biden's mandate that private business make sure employees are vaccinated will survive a court challenge. We'll see. There are other court precedents to consider. And where public opinion stands, a poll from the Job Creators Network, an advocacy group for small business, found that a plurality of 42 percent of those surveyed agreed that mandatory vaccinations would hurt small businesses, while only 33 percent thought the uh, mandates would help. Other polls, though, have have shown support for mandating vaccinations against COVID-19. An Associated Press poll found 62 percent support for a government vaccine mandate. Numerous major employers already required employees to get vaccinated. And Thursday night, the president himself said even Fox News requires employees to say whether they have been vaccinated. Other news outlets reported last month that Fox requires employees to disclose their vaccination status. 
why they are singled out, and that should matter. They've been pro-vaccine from the beginning. However, one um, leading liberal think tank waited until after Biden's announcement uh, that the government mandates on private employers would be in place. Uh, President and CEO of the Center for American Progress sent an email Friday to staff announcing the think tank's new policy. CAP must do its part, he wrote at the time, to advance this program at a moment when both private and public concerns must be aligned. Well, the courts will ultimately decide who has the authority, whether that's the president or just states and localities. We'll continue to follow that story. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the federal government collected a record, let's see, three trillion five hundred and eighty six billion four hundred and fifty six million dollars in total taxes through the first 11 months of fiscal year 2021, according to the monthly Treasury statement. Uh, that is a um, a record. And that's only through August. The federal government also collected a record. Let's see, uh, $1,829,589,000 in individual income taxes in September through August. However, because the federal government also spent some $6 trillion um, and some on dollars, uh, the Treasury still ran a deficit of $2 trillion. Well, when the September through August spending numbers uh, for prior fiscal years are adjusted for inflation into July of this year, uh, dollars, the latest month the Bureau um, has an inflation calculator uh, to adjust for. This September through August spending was the second highest ever. That's spending, not just the tax collection. The $6 trillion plus uh, that the federal government spent in the September through August period last year remains the highest ever. Before this year, the most total taxes uh, money for fed- the federal government ever collected in the first 11 months of the fiscal year was in fiscal year 2015 when it collected three trillion three hundred and two, and it goes on from there. Well, also better uh, before this year, rather the most individual income tax money the federal government ever collected was in fiscal year 2018. In addition to collecting a record uh, amount in individual income taxes in the September through August period, the Treasury also uh, collected uh, corporate income taxes, uh, Social Security insurance and retirement taxes, excise taxes. Um, an estimate of $24 trillion and gift taxes uh, in uh, customs taxes and miscellaneous receipts. On the spending side, the federal government spent the most money through the Department of Health and Human Services uh, in expenditures in September through August. A lot of money coming in, more money yet going out. Well, Americans spent more on taxes in 2020 than they did on food, clothing, health care and entertainment combined According to newly released data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, American Consumer Units, uh, or BLS uh, as they're called, spent a uh, net uh, total of $17,211 on taxes last year while spending only $16,839.89 on food, um, clothing, health care, entertainment, all combined, according to uh, the uh, BLS Consumer Expenditure Survey. Consumer units, BLS explained, including families, single persons living alone or sharing a household with others, but who are financially independent or two or more persons living together who share major expenses, paid a lot of money in taxes. In 2020, according to their uh, research, American consumer units paid an average of $8,811 in federal income taxes while getting back 1911 in stimulus payments. 
They also um, paid on average $2,492.71 in state and local income taxes, $5,392 in Social Security taxes, $2,353 in property taxes, and $71.87 in other taxes. That equals a net total of $17,211.12 in taxes. In other words, Americans on average paid the government $371.23 more in 2020 than they paid for food, clothing, health care, and entertainment combined. Although entertainment, who spent money on that in 2020? Well, the massive, unprecedented $3.5 trillion spending bill making its way through Congress includes education spending, uh, spending rather, on an equally unprecedented scale. In all, the plan would spend some $761 billion on education and workforce programs on par with total annual education spending from all sources, federal, state, and local. It is astronomical. Well, the bulk of the proposed education spending in the House Education and Labor Committee proposal, $450 billion, would be earmarked for federal universal preschool and child care. The spending would go toward government universal preschool for three to Four-year-old children, as proposed in the Biden administration's American Families Plan. In addition to uh, this likely driving up the cost of preschool broadly, it's unlikely to benefit participating children. The bulk of the scientifically rigorous evaluations of preschool programs yield consistently negative findings, namely that any benefits fade over time. Well, demand for new large-scale government spending on early childhood education and care is also not evident. About half of three- and four-year-olds already spend formal pre-K programs, and half of women who are employed and have children under 18 would prefer to stay home when their children are young. Well, the new taxpayer spending would also be used to pay families to spend their children, or rather to send them to government-approved child care centers, ensuring that families earning up to twice the median income level pay no more than 7% of their income for child care. The plan would also use taxpayer dollars to selectively increase the wages of child care workers and government approved programs by providing federal funds to states so that they can add up to $16,000 per year to the wages of each full-time employee. When added to the base salaries, that would mean the Federal subsidy would result in salaries of more than $48,000 for some child care workers, more than elementary school teachers in some states. And it goes on from there. The $3.5 trillion spending bill is somewhat imperiled by Democrats who are suggesting the the number is just too much. And we'll continue to follow that story. Well, a survey by the New York Federal Reserve released on Monday shows that American households expect the recent spike in inflation won't go away anytime soon, despite the Biden administration's continued insistence that the surge in consumer prices will be fleeting. It all depends on how you define fleeting. Well, the medium expectation for the inflation rate over the next year increased to 5.2 percent in August. The New York uh, Fed's survey consumer expectations found, well, that level is the highest median expected inflation rate recorded since surveys began in 2013. Respondents also said that they expected inflation to be up by 4% in three years. Inflation uncertainty or the uncertainty expressed regarding future inflation outcomes increased at both the short and medium term horizons to new serious uh, highs, the survey uh, stated. Well, the Biden administration has insisted that rising inflation driven in part by supply chain disruption, and we've certainly seen that with the coronavirus pandemic, would be temporary. 
Fed Chairman Jerome Powell made a similar assessment in August. Inflation at these levels is, of course, a cause for concern, Powell said at the time. But that concern is tempered by a number of factors that suggest that these elevated readings are likely to prove temporary. Let's hope uh, he and the president are right. The math doesn't seem to add up and fleeting can be defined in a number of ways. If you're talking about the whole span of human history, fleeting, that would be a word that applies. If you're talking about the next year or several months, maybe not so much. While Republicans exploded with fury over the uh, president's vaccine mandate, calling it absolutely unconstitutional. uh, And in other developments, California professor is suing over the vaccine mandate, saying he has natural immunity. That's not accounted for in the president's mandate. The uh, RNC is planning to sue the president's, the administration, over the vaccine mandates. And the president's plan for forced vaccinations doesn't include illegal immigrants. When questioned, there was no clear answer. The president declares sweeping new vaccine mandates. This is not about freedom, he said. The nation begs to differ. Well, the president declared a war on DeSantis and Abbott. Get them out of the way, the president said. Well, 9-11 education should avoid placing blame. Leave out gruesome details. That's what college students said when asked. 9-11 education should avoid placing blame and leave out the gruesome details of that fatally fateful day. So as to prevent extreme nationalism, some college students warned students from the University of Florida spoke with campus reform recently to share their opinions on how 9-11 should be taught. Many of them weren't around when it happened. Among their suggestions was to avoid the discussion altogether of who was responsible for the terrorist attacks. It's like saying Pearl Harbor, uh, Pearl Harbor just sort of happened. It doesn't matter who did it or why. Others said the idea of American exceptionalism shouldn't be mentioned at all in lessons. According to one student, American exceptionalism is rooted in a lot of colonialist and imperialist notions of how we should treat other people. Another student suggested that a lot of young people who adopt the dangerous mindset of American exceptionalism risk growing up to be extremists and really nationalistic. In other developments, the president's visit to New York City, Pennsylvania and the Pentagon on 9-11 was as expected. Uh, Zeldin says 20 years after 9-11, it's infuriating that the Taliban controls Afghanistan again, even more broadly than before. Boston 911 display with the American flag honoring victims of vandal was vandalized and the lost calls of 911 revealed never before heard calls from one of the darkest days in U.S. history. I listened through those uh, those conversations. It was fascinating to hear what was said in real time and then to hear from the people who made those comments and what they were witnessing at the time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up after news and traffic at the top of the hour, we'll hear from Michael Knowles, author of Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. We'll also look at whether or not there was uh, prolonged unity and revival following the events of September 11th, 2001. You may already know the answer. Well, photos are circulating of the horrible bruises from reporters detained and beaten by the Taliban. We're only seeing the survivors. Journalists are finding the Taliban is not as professional and businesslike as some have characterized them to be. Meanwhile, ESPN sidelined a reporter who was taking time away for not being vaccinated in order to have a second child. Allison Williams, a veteran college football sideline reporter for ESPN, announced on Thursday that she'll be opting out of the season because she'll um, she will not take the COVID-19 vaccine. ESPN's parent company, Disney, announced last month that all employees were required to be fully vaccinated. 
Allison Williams says this is to be the first fall in the last 15 years. I won't be on the sidelines of college football. White House, the Taliban is professional and businesslike. I thought it bore repeating. China will provide $31 million worth of aid to the Taliban. China will provide uh, this amount worth of food, winter weather supplies, vaccines and medicine to Taliban controlled Afghanistan. China's foreign ministry said on Wednesday it's not clear if they're going around the Taliban or through the Taliban. Yahoo points out the Chinese uh, side attaches great importance to the Afghan Taliban's announcement of an interim government. Chinese Foreign Minister Spokesman Wang Wenbin said on Wednesday, this is a necessary step in restoring domestic order and moving towards post-war reconstruction. As expected or predicted, networks mostly ignore racist attacks on Larry Elder. I guess it's okay to be racist if you don't like your opponent, although I thought um, race was the number one issue, particularly among the networks. And 60 percent of voters agree with Manchin on the cost of the reconciliation bill, including a slim majority of independents. A look at the battle within the Democratic Party over the massive spending puts the uh, the potential program in some peril. Well, the Pentagon top brass is uh, testified before the Senate panel on the chaotic U.S. pullout of with uh, of Afghanistan and new and improved. Hardly the Taliban tortured journalists and others who covered protests in Kabul despite free press pledge fort hood terrorists congratulated the taliban from death row in handwritten letters and merrick garland garland's justice department is suing texas over their pro-life law the heartbeat uh, law the department of justice is moving to release the fbi documents on the investigation into possible saudi 9-11 hijacker links as requested by the families of 9-11 victims and team biden puts systematic racism at the center of its u.s foreign policy expressing utter shock that the Taliban didn't have more diverse leadership. The CDC quietly changed the definition of vaccination so as to fit the political narrative. You can read more about that um, online. And Los Angeles school officials are ordering sweeping vaccine mandates for students 12 and older. Well, the Surgeon General says the U.S. plans to monitor whether vaccine exemptions are being used properly. Dr. Vivek Murthy has advised that the Biden administration will monitor to ensure no one abuses COVID-19 vaccine exemptions. The president last week announced his mandates, as we've already discussed. Uh, some critics argue that the exemptions allow for simple abuse, but Murthy insists the administration will ensure that does not happen. Unfortunately, as a country, we have experience in dealing with exemptions, but we've got to be vigilant there and make sure that people are using them, you know, in the spirit that they're intended and not abusing them or asking for exemptions when they don't apply. He was speaking on CNN's State of the Union. That's an area that we continue to monitor in the days and weeks ahead. In other developments, Governor Christie says the vice president, then Senator Harris, started the politicization of the COVID-19 vaccines. And Nebraska Governor Ricketts railed against the vaccine mandate, as have others. New Yorkers reacted to the president's vaccine mandate, saying it's going against everyone's will. England uh, canceled plans for COVID-19 vaccine passports, according to a health official. And Texas Attorney General Paxson is suing school districts for defying the governor's mask mandate executive order. Former President Trump said the Afghanistan withdrawal opened the door to China and Russia to reverse engineer U.S. military equipment. Uh, The former president blasted the administration's withdrawal and speculated that China and Russia could already be reverse engineering U.S. military equipment left behind. 
College students chanted expletive Joe Biden at football games across the country. And Newt Gingrich asked uh, of Biden's Afghanistan surrender, who will be held accountable for this national disgrace? It's a rhetorical question. While Representative Walls says the Biden uh, Biden's reckless withdrawal from Afghanistan set up a path to another 9-11. Others wonder if that will, in fact, be the case. Actress Rose McGowan slammed Black Lives Matter alongside Larry Elder, saying he might just know more than you. The actress called out the BLM movement during her event with California gubernatorial candidate Larry Elders, arguing that people should stop labeling each other based on race and focus on their uh, humanity instead. They want to hear that the uh, more we micro uh, label each other, the better we'll be. Uh, McGowan said during a Sunday press conference, the reality is today I challenge this state. I challenge these voters. I challenge the media to back up my uh, be human first vote for humanity. Well, an L.A. Times columnist called black recall candidate Larry Elder a very real threat to communities of color. He doesn't uh, he's straight off the plantation. Apparently, Representative Gowdy points out that some progressives want to stop paying cops by paying criminals not to kill us. And Governor Newsom says, don't let California become Texas as residents and businesses are fleeing to Texas under his leadership. North Korea says it tested a long range cruise missile. A Washington State High School called off a 9-11 football tribute. They were going to wear red, white and blue because some could be offended. Salesforce's billionaire CEO says he'll move workers out of Texas due to their abortion law. And the average U.S. price for gas rose two cents per gallon to three dollars and twenty five cents. I would love to pay three dollars and twenty five cents here in Oregon. It's much higher. Shipping options have dried up as businesses are trying to rebuild from the pandemic. And the secret to Apple's iPhone sales boom, big 5G deals from wireless uh, carriers rebuilt after 9-11. The One World Trade Center is 90 percent filled after cost overruns and delays. Wall Street analysts are warning the U.S. stock market is facing the risk of a bumpy autumn. Hugh Hewitt says we can't forget those held hostage in Afghanistan. He says we have a right to know the scale of this crisis, the minimum number of U.S. passport holders known by our authorities to be in Afghanistan. And it is a crisis. It is America held hostage 2.0. And though a cohort of Americans escaped Thursday, many remain behind. Zaki, with astonishing indifference to the worries of families and friends across the country, said on Wednesday that there were a handful of Americans still in Afghanistan. A handful. It is shocking to hear that Americans do not come in handfuls. They come in ones. Each one matters. One American abandoned is a crisis. We need to know the denominator against which the ongoing efforts can be measured. Well, Axios reports that the Biden Afghanistan exit leaves America lacking key intelligence and counterterrorism. We have no presence on the ground. Actress Rose McGowan announced she is backing Larry Elder and a New York hospital shut down their maternity ward as nurses resigned over COVID-19 vaccine mandates. House Democrats are seeking large increases on the corporate tax rate. And a Wall Street Journal test found that TikTok is pushing sex, drugs and eating disorders on young teens. On this day in history, 1788, the Congress of the Confederation authorizes the first national election and declares New York City the temporary national capital. Uh, 1943, Chiang Kai-shek becomes president of China. 
1948, Republican Margaret Chase Smith of Maine is elected to the U.S. Senate, becoming the first woman to serve in both chambers of Congress. 1962, Mississippi Governor Rose Barnett rejects the U.S. Supreme Court's order for the University of Mississippi to admit James Meredith, a black student, declaring in a televised address, we will not drink from the cup of genocide. 1993, at the White House, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and PLO Chairman Yasser Arafat shake hands after signing an accord granting limited Palestinian autonomy. And there's more, but we're out of time. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest makes the point that the culture war is over and the culture is lost. The left's assault on liberty, virtue, decency, the Republican form of government the founders established and Western civilization has succeeded. Well, how did we get to this point? That's the question. Well, in speechless, controlling words, controlling minds, national bestselling author and political commentator Michael Knowles of the Daily Wire reveals how political correctness is part of a large political agenda to stifle free thought through strategic control of language. He exposes and diagnoses the losing strategy that conservatives have fallen for and shows how they can change course and start winning. Well, my next guest once again is uh, Michael Knowles. He is a conservative political commentator, the host of the Michael Knowles Show at The Daily Wire. In addition to his daily podcast, he frequently writes opinion commentary and speaks on college campuses for the Young America's Foundation. In 2017, he published an Amazon best-selling book, Reasons to Vote for Democrats, a Comprehensive Guide, which consisted of chapter headings and 266 accompanying blank pages. Shortly after the book was released, then-President Donald Trump tweeted his endorsement of the book. Once again, he joins us today to talk about his latest, Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. Michael Knowles, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's so good to be with you, and I'm, I'm so uh, honored that you had mentioned both books. One without any words in it, and then the other entirely about words. <laughs> now, is, <laughs> what a breath to talk about. Is there an irony in that? <laughs> One on language, <laughs> the other <laughs> lacking language. <laughs> yes, I, I felt it was really the only way to follow up with the number one best-selling blank book. And I, I was, I'm really honored. I, I have to tell you, when I, when I came out with Speechless, I feared that people would not want to buy the book. It seems like a little bit of a dry topic, you know, <laughs> words and manipulation of language. And I feared that the critics would tell me to stick to what I know, namely nothing. But I'm, I'm really pleased, and I, I thank everybody who's made it, made Speechless a number one national bestseller, because I, I think this is the the biggest problem that we face as a country. I know we're focused on wars overseas, we're focused on the economy and immigration. But frankly, I think that the left's manipulation of our language is the most effective tool that they have at reshaping our political order, because it reshapes our minds and it frankly reshapes our whole society. You make the point in the book that people often respond to that by saying, well, it's just simply semantics. But if we understand what semantics means, we understand the importance of resting control over the language and the impact that ultimately has the potential to make. That's right. Semantics means the meaning of words. So when people say, oh, it's just semantics, you think, well, that's that's sort of the whole argument, isn't it? And, and we're reminded that that whoever frames the issue wins the debate. And I, I think this is why the left is so focused on language. Who cares, they'll say, uh, if you call an illegal alien an undocumented American. And obviously the left cares, because what the left understands 
is that an illegal alien has no right to be in this country. But an undocumented American is an American by definition, so they obviously do. And I think this is why you're, you're seeing in particular the battle over the pronouns. Mm-hmm. So often I'll hear my conservative friends, they'll say, oh, just give up the pronouns. Just call Bruce Jenner she. It's not a big deal. But, well, I, I think it probably is a big deal. I think that's why the left is investing so much time and energy in, into making us call men she and women he, because if Caitlyn Jenner is a she, then she has every right to use the women's bathroom or play women's sports. If Bruce Jenner is a he, then he obviously does not have a right to, to the women's bathroom. So I think that the reason that this gender pronoun issue has become such a focal point is that if the left can redefine sexual difference, the fundamental distinction in human nature, then the left can redefine anything. And I think that's really their, their goal here is to redefine all the words in an attempt to remake reality entirely. The problem is they understand that the rest of us may not. Um, You write that the irony lies at the heart of political correctness. To call something politically correct is to acknowledge that it is not correct, at least by the standard of reality. A man in a dress is a man, but according to political correctness, he is a trans woman, a term with the same ironic structure. To call someone a trans woman is to acknowledge that he is not really a woman at all. Uh, Understanding the power of the language we use, we choose to use or we're being forced to use really is at the heart of the issue. Yes. And we have been told since political correctness hit the public imagination about 30 years ago, I think I argue in speechless that it has been developed for about a century, but we became aware of it about three or four decades ago. And we were told it was just a way of being polite. Yes, it uses euphemisms, you know, soft words to sugarcoat harsh realities. But but we do that all the time. When I refer to a woman of a certain age, Instead of to an old hag, I'm I'm just being polite. I'm I'm softening reality. Can I just say thank you before you move on? (laughs) (laughs) You know, speaking to someone who is obviously 29 years old, I I would never use either of those terms. Uh, But but, you know, there is a big difference here between the way that the left and the right use euphemism, because it's one thing to to say I'm going to go to the powder room instead of the bathroom. Uh, there might be powder in that room, depending on whatever, whatever else you're going to do there either. Uh, but, but there's a difference between that and referring to, for instance, a justice-involved person. That's the new euphemism for criminal. <laughs> it's used in the academy. It's used in legal circles. And it doesn't just soften the reality of a criminal. It inverts it. Whatever you want to call a criminal, he sure isn't involved in justice. And I, I think you, you see it clearly as well in this trans woman argument. Whatever you want to call Bruce Jenner, he's not a woman of any kind. And so I don't think it's a a matter of being polite. I think it's a way of deceiving people. I think it's a way of lying to people. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we're living in those delusions. Right now, we're living in, in that culture of lies. You write that conservatives have failed to thwart political correctness because most of us don't understand what it is. Political correctness is not merely a synonym for censorship, though the two concepts are related. Political correctness is a standard of speech and behavior along leftist ideological lines. It no doubt censors certain words and actions, but then so does chivalry. Let's begin by um, talking about what political correctness is. It's not a matter of just censorship and liberty. It's much more profound than that, and you've touched on it already. Well, uh, thank you. I'm glad you you focused on that point, because I think this is the essential point of the book. It is what I'm trying to get across to conservatives who may have their hearts in the right place, 
may have the best of intentions, but I think they are unwittingly actually advancing the cause of political correctness because they fail to recognize what PC is. So there's this strange fact that you know, we've been fighting over PC for several decades, and it seems the harder we fight, the more ground we lose. I think it is because the right has understood this or misunderstood this to be a battle between free speech and censorship. You always hear today, free speech is, is on the decline or cancel culture is on the rise. But in many ways, we're much freer to say certain things today than we were in the past. We're now permitted to say all of those naughty words that George Carlin said could not be said on TV. In fact, these days it seems like it's almost obligatory. Uh, However, we're not allowed to state plain political truths. We're not allowed to say that a man is not a woman. We're not allowed to say that a baby is a baby in some cases. We're not allowed to say that our country is a good place or we could be accused of bigotry or or white supremacy or or any other sort of slogan. We're not allowed to question our elections. We are not allowed to raise questions about massive public health uh, policies that are, are being advocated. So there's a little bit of a give and take. I think what's, what's really happening here is less a battle between pure free speech on the one hand and pure censorship on the other, as it is shifting the limits of discourse. There are always going to be limits. There are always going to be taboos. There are always going to be standards. And what the left did in the middle of the 20th century was upend all of those standards. And now I think they're being resettled again in ways that are, are really advantageous to the left and really harmful to the traditional American way of life. We're talking this afternoon with Michael Knowles. He's written a very important book. I would highly recommend all of us read it. Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. We need to take a quick break, but we will continue in just a few moments. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Michael Knowles, his latest book, Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. I think it's absolutely essential that we better understand what political correctness is, the power that it has, and the power we can deprive it if we understand the role that we ought to play in resisting this uh, this move. Now, you make the point that conservatives have wasted decades attempting to thwart political correctness, or PC, through dime store philosophizing over free speech, progressively abandoning our, substan- our substantive cultural inheritance for a misbegotten notion of liberty that can never exist in practice. Have we wasted so much time, as you point out, decades, that we can't, once understanding political correctness, do something to reverse the trend in the culture, which, you know, sort of came late to this process, that the culture was the focus. Can we reverse what we're seeing? I do think there's a glimmer of hope. You know, the difference between a conservative optimist and a conservative pessimist is a conservative pessimist says things can't get any worse, and a conservative optimist says, oh, yes, they can. (laughs) But but I, I do think that there is a glimmer of hope here. And you're seeing it at school boards. You're seeing it with parents showing up and saying, we're not going to let you indoctrinate our kids with these radical gender and racial theories. And these are parents who run the gamut of class, of race, of geography. So I, I do think the American people still have common sense. But our ruling class, unfortunately, does not have common sense. And that includes the so-called conservative leaders and Republican leaders. And I think one of the biggest issues with our misunderstanding of PC is we don't understand what liberty is. So we think that because you're allowed to say a bunch of swear words on TV, that you somehow have more freedom of speech in in certain ways. But it's it's not, it isn't quite so simple. Uh, You know, what our founding fathers understood 
is that liberty is not licentiousness. Liberty is not the ability to do whatever you want whenever you want to do it. Liberty is the right to do what you ought to do. Liberty intrinsically mm-hmm. has limits. The, the way I would bring it down to earth is just that According to the modern liberal view of liberty, uh, the heroin addict is the freest person in the world as long as he's got a couple bucks in his pocket and he can shoot up. Isn't he? He's so free. He's pursuing his desires. Now, of course, you and I know that man's not free at all. He's a slave. He's a slave to his base appetites, his basest passions. And in the traditional American and just generally classical understanding, we've understood liberty as the suppression of our basest appetites and, and bringing them into accord with our higher will. That was the whole point of liberal education is to make sense of your liberty and to enable you to govern yourself and to be a citizen. This is why when John Adams says the Constitution is built for a moral and religious people, he's not, he's not thumping his Bible. He's not being superstitious. He's just making an obvious observation about politics, which is that if, if you do not govern yourself, someone is going to have to come in and rule you. And so I think what the left did was they basically blew up all the standards at the latter part of the 20th century, and they upended our ability to govern ourselves and our higher liberty. And now that we're all living in a sort of decadent and licentious culture, uh, they are the ones that are imposing the necessary limits on us. You point out in your chapter on standards and practices that uh, radical theorists hadn't long pursued culture as their means of revolution before artists and producers of culture uh, took notice. And you give a, a, something of a history. Talk a bit about how the communists figured out that their revolution could never succeed as long as the common man was uh, attached to his own culture. And the significance of culture being the focus of uh, so much of what the left is trying to impact and change because it has the potential to have much broader impact in other areas. Well, this is the brilliance of the the man who I identify as the Mac Daddy godfather. (laughs) He was an an early cultural Marxist. I know that it's now politically incorrect to use that term, but he's a very very prominent Marxist philosopher who focused on culture. His name is Antonio Gramsci. And and he recognized that the, the reason the Marxian revolution had not happened is because the radicals had all these wonderful theories for upending society and and liberating the poor oppressed masses. But the poor oppressed masses actually didn't really like the theories. (laughs) They liked their own culture and their own people and their own rituals. And so what Gramsci recognized is that the radicals had to attain cultural hegemony. They had to go in, infiltrate the established institutions, transform those institutions uh, into a position that is uh, more advantageous to them. And then and only then would they be able to make lasting gains. So this this was followed up by other leftist intellectuals. I'm thinking of the Frankfurt School, the critical theorists. Critical race theory is very much in the news these days. One of those critical theorists, Herbert Marcuse, reappears in the 1960s. He becomes the father of the new left, radical student movement. And th- this is where you saw the importation of Mao's writings, uh, you know, the communist dictator in China. You saw the rise of other radical groups, uh, student groups and non-student groups in the United States. And so I, I don't want to sound like a tinfoil hat person or like a conservative broken record when I, when I mention that political correctness has Marxist roots. And Marx isn't responsible for every problem in the world, but he is responsible for a great many of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the, the people who developed this called themselves Marxists. And the phrase political correctness actually is a Marxist phrase. It was used by old-line communists. 
And I think actually the whole endeavor comes from a line that Karl Marx wrote to Arnold Ruga, which is uh, when he called for the ruthless criticism of all that exists. I think that is largely what political correctness has been about. It has been about ruthlessly criticizing the nation, the family, the culture, the religion, the beliefs, the values, everything about the country, hollow it out from within so that in that now ruin of a civilization, a revolution can take place along leftist lines. So when the founder of Black Lives Matter says that I am thoroughly trained in Marxism, we ought to take that seriously, recognizing what that means. When BLM says, uh, you know, hollowing out the, the traditional family is one of our goals, we need to take that seriously and recognize what the ultimate goal is. Yes, when people tell you who they are, you should believe them. Absolutely. <laughs> it's not, just, not just that one founder of BLM, but actually her two co-founders as well, self-described Marxists on the website they talk about disrupting the Western prescribed nuclear family. Last I checked, you know, I've got some, I've got many friends of color all around the country and their most important racial issue to their minds is not upending the nuclear family. But, but that is something that Marxist activists have been after for a century. And, and so I think we do need to believe them. And uh, I think we need to recognize that the threat here is not not just to some policy or some other policy or one city or another. This is posing an existential threat to our entire way of life. Yeah, absolutely. And you can count me among your African-American friends or black or Negro or whichever is the in vogue uh, at the moment. Uh, once again, we're talking this afternoon with Michael Knowles. He's the author most recently of Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. And by the way, there are lots of words in this book, if you're wondering. Uh, <laughs> covers all the important issues and helps us as conservatives recognize where we have fallen short, first of all, in understanding what political correctness is and then responding in a way that's going to be uh, effective. You have a chapter on the tolerant left and make reference early on to Maxine Waters, that influential Democrat politician who held uh, elected office since, as you point out, uh, and I'm reminded, the Ford administration. Um, and she has uh, suggested that um, uh, those who opposed at that time Donald Trump uh, need to pull out all the stops. We need, need to make the world a place where anyone who supports or worked with or embraces Donald Trump and his worldview, uh, there's no place for them in the world. That doesn't really reflect what we were led to believe political correctness was about and the tolerant left uh, urging us to embrace what um, we otherwise would not. Well, that's right. The tolerance was always merely an instrument. It was just a, a tool, a, a fake out, so that they could install their new standards in the world. I think of Maxine Waters and, and other prominent Democrats who openly called for violence against conservatives because the, what the left did was define their own violence as speech and define conservative speech as violence. And I think this has roots going back to Herbert Marcuse and the new left. There's an infamous little essay that he wrote called Repressive Tolerance. And in it, he said that tolerance cannot tolerate intolerance. And he said that uh, a liberating tolerance would basically shut up all the conservatives and encourage speech from leftists. And people don't really talk about this essay very much anymore. But I think they should, because I think actually he makes a very good point here. Any, any speech regime is going to have limits. It, he's right when he says tolerance cannot tolerate intolerance. Actually, when I think of John Locke, father of liberalism, in his letter concerning toleration, he said that some people cannot be tolerated. He was talking specifically about atheists. He said it would undermine his entire 
philosophy. Uh, John Milton said the same thing in Areopagitica. It's one of the most famous defenses of free speech in history. And he, he said that uh, atheists and Catholics <laughs> should not be tolerated. I'm glad that that is no longer in effect as a papist myself, but I see why he said it. What, what they were arguing is that we have to agree on some basic things in order to get along together, in order to have a political community. If we have nothing in common, if nothing is settled, then, then we do not have a nation or a political community. And what the left has done very successfully over the last century is upend every single thing that we had settled. We don't even speak the same language anymore. I'm not just talking about Spanish. I'm talking about English. Mm-hmm. We don't even know what a man is and what a woman is, so we can't agree on very much else. And I think it's important, while we talk about keeping an open mind and we talk about free and open debate, I think it's important for conservatives to recognize that certain things really do need to be settled. We need to agree on a few basic things in this country if we are to get along, because the, the calls for perfectly open, totally tolerant societies are, are not possible. They've never existed anywhere in the world. George Soros, leftist financier, his, his foundation is called the Open Societies Foundation. And I, I think what has happened in our country is our minds have been so open that our brains have fallen out. <laughs> and that's that closing again along the lines of the left. Yeah, yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation again. My guest, Michael Knowles, his book titled Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds is published by Regnery. You need to get your copy today. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Michael Knowles. He's a conservative political commentator and host of The Michael Knowles Show at The Daily Wire. In addition to his daily podcast, he frequently writes opinion, commentary, and speaks on college campuses for the Young America's Foundation. In 2017, he published an Amazon best-selling book, Reasons to Vote for Democrats, a Comprehensive Guide. It consisted of chapter headings and 266 accompanying blank pages. <laughs> well, shortly after the book uh, was released, President Donald Trump tweeted his endorsement of it at that time. So uh, today we're talking about his book, Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. Now, we touched on this just a moment ago, uh, but talk a little bit about the First Amendment and the fact that it doesn't require value neutral uh, a value-neutral public square. We oftentimes acquiesce because we think that unity requires that kind of embrace of pretty much everything, at least quiet embrace, if not endorsement. Yes, I think this has been one of the big missteps that conservatives have made because when, when we call ourselves free speech absolutists, and I've heard a number of conservatives say that, I think what we imagine ourselves to be standing for is the free speech American tradition truth, justice, and the American way. But we ought to remember that there are uh, whole swaths of speech that have been off limits from the beginning of the country. I'm thinking of threats, fighting words, uh, sedition, obscenity, uh, for instance, which are still illegal today, though these laws are not really enforced quite as much. When we call ourselves free speech absolutists, one, we're, we're speaking in terms that would be alien to the First Amendment and mm-hmm. to the philosophy of the founding fathers. But two, we are actually advancing political correctness because remember, the whole point of political correctness is to upend traditional standards. So whether you go along with the new woke standard or if you just give up standards entirely, either way, wittingly or unwittingly, you you are advancing that purpose. So I think it's important to remember that, that we actually can make some judgments about things, especially on obscenity. 
You know, just about a dozen years ago, we put a pornographer in federal prison for four years just for obscenity. I mean, and that, that was pretty recent. Uh, 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago, the Clinton administration, a Republican House, Democrat Senate, Democrat president signed into law not one but two anti-indecency bills, the Communications Decency Act and the Child Online Protection Act, which even went even further and banned material that appealed to the prurient interest. Today, probably most people have never even heard that phrase, prurient mm-hmm. interest. Uh, we just think that it's not possible to make distinctions between good and bad things. There was a conservative columnist a few years ago who defended drag queen story hour as one of the blessings of liberty. I'm mm. not joking. And, and he, he did it because he embraced a radical skepticism. He said, you know, if we don't let perverts twerk for toddlers at the library, why then the left won't get, let us go to church on Sunday? First of all, they already don't want us to go to church on Sunday, <laughs> and they proved it during the coronavirus. But, but second, we have to acknowledge here that if we can't discern between a pervert jiggling for a kid and a pastor preaching the gospel, then we can't discern between anything. What we're admitting is we don't have reason, we don't have moral judgment. And if we don't have those things anymore, fortunately, we don't have the capacity for self-government. We can't uh, end our conversation without making reference to Dr. Fauci. You point out in the book that in the early days of the epidemic, Dr. Fauci had one clear message for the public. It was stop wearing masks. And according to the good doctor, masking didn't um, just fail to stop the spread of the virus. It actually damaged public health. Then a month later, they all changed their minds. Um, in your chapter in which you uh, write about this, uh, the challenge of the current pandemic and the power that has been uh, wielded and the language that's been used, uh, not for the sake of conveying scientific truth, but for uh, reasons of manipulating the public, um, is an important uh, example of where we are today and what we need to be uh, mindful of moving forward. Can you talk a little bit about um, the 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 challenge that we're currently in and uh, how this uh, locking down dissent has uh, pretty much set in? Yes, I think Dr. Fauci is the high priest of this story. And he may not even know it. It is funny when you look at Fauci's early statements and he said, don't wear the mask, the masks don't work. And then later he said, you have to wear the mask. And then when he was asked what changed his mind, he admitted it wasn't science. He said it was a political consideration. He wanted to save the masks for his nurses friends. And so he lied to the people and said that the masks don't work when he really believed that they did. And Fauci has misled and lied many times over his career. He's a politician. That's what politicians do. But but he doesn't acknowledge that he's a politician. He actually came out and said that what he does is not political. And this is an absurd statement because public health is by definition political. Political and public are are synonyms. Dr. Fauci has worked for the government for, for six presidential administrations. <laughs> he gets a paycheck from the government. He is a politician. And uh, what progressivism has done for the past century is has taken away power from the people and given it to unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats who allegedly know better than all of us how we ought to live our lives. And we are supposed to mindlessly acquiesce to whatever they think. I, I'm not suggesting that Dr. Fauci's never had a good idea in his life. I have yet to hear it, but I, I'm not saying that. He might have good advice. But what is so offensive, what is so bizarre, is that Dr. Fauci is to be believed not on the basis of whether his advice is right or not. He is to be believed regardless of what he says, even if what he says today contradicts what he mm-hmm. said just a few hours ago. That, that is the kind of radical redefinitional power 
that the left is wielding in their language games. And I, I, it, they're doing it so well that they hide their tracks and they've convinced a large number of people that what they're doing isn't even really politics. Well, in fact, if you are questioning what's been said today and what's been said a week ago, you fall in the category of, of um, you know, terrorists. You're a danger to the to the nation. Right. You write in this chapter, Locking Down Dissent, the left's abuse of scientific credentials to affect political ends long predates the coronavirus pandemic, going back at least to the earliest days of global warming, then known as global cooling. Who knows what it'll be known in the days ahead? So this is there's nothing new under the sun, um, if you will. Now, we're just about out of time. Let me invite you to speak to our listeners today about whether or not you're optimistic, what we need to do to resist the tide, uh, first by understanding what political correctness is and then responding correctly, if you will. I do believe that th- there is some hope. I, ac- I actually do have that glimmer of hope because of the American people, because the left has so overplayed its hand and because reality does reassert itself in the end, though, though people who live in delusion can take us on a bad journey in the meantime. Uh, well, I think what needs to happen, though, is that the right needs to stop focusing on its procedural abstract arguments about this totally pie-in-the-sky free speech that has never existed in practice. The fact is that an abstract notion of free speech doesn't mean anything to people who don't have anything to say. And all that the right has been able to agree on since the end of the Cold War is on the importance of temporarily cutting taxes. And I, I think that that is not a governing philosophy. And we need to recognize what our views of the good, the true, and the beautiful and and right and wrong are, and, and we need to pursue our political vision, and we need to be able to articulate it. Otherwise, we're going to leave a vacuum that is going to be filled by the left. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one way to begin that process in our own hearts and minds is by reading Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds, published by Regnery. Michael Knowles, first of all, thank you for the book, and thank you for taking time to talk with us here today. Well, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so really much. I appreciate it. Have a great afternoon. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Bonnie Kristen wrote an article for Christianity Today, and the headline read, Why 9-11 Brought Neither Unity Nor Revival. And I think for a lot of us, looking back or thinking back to 20 years ago, we imagine that there was that moment of unity, at least apparent unity, uh, and that there was revival that followed, that people were drawn to uh, spiritual and deeper things. Well, Bonnie Christen points out that many Christians think spiritual renewal followed the terrorist attacks, but the record shows otherwise. Now, you may be a bit surprised. I was. She writes that the immediate aftermath of the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, was a strange and fearful time. That I remember vividly. But it also seemed a hopeful time. A massive shift in perspective happened to our country on September 11th. That's what Philip Yancey wrote in 2001. For a little while, he mused the sense of if everything had changed in a single moment, made us look at our land, our society and ourselves in a way. Well, it made us live in conscious awareness of death, made us notice that many of us fill our lives with trivialities and forced us to turn to our spiritual roots. That's how it felt at the time. That's what we expected. Well, talk of unity was everywhere. Church attendance spiked and Christian leaders began predicting a national revival. In 2001, in a speech, President George W. Bush praised Americans for our decency, kindness and commitment to one another. Now, 
on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which, of course, was Saturday. Uh, with the U.S. military withdrawn from Afghanistan, we should ask, where, were those hopes fulfilled? We certainly didn't maintain that sense of unity. Quickly, Christians got into heated discussions about whether we could support military invasions, torture, and the Patriot Act, and more. Since then, our political division seems even more embittered, and polarization is on the rise. And as for the policy, well, wherever you uh, you land on these things, my guess is you aren't too happy with how it's gone. And our current political discourse is awash with talk of treason and even civil war. Our lack of unity isn't only disappointment. The foretold revival never came either. For a few weeks after 9-11, people packed the pews, but it soon became apparent there wasn't a great awakening or a profound change in America's religious practices. Frank Newport, a Gallup poll editor-in-chief, told the New York Times in November of that same year. Barna Group confirmed that conclusion in 2006. It tracked 19 dimensions of spirituality and beliefs and found none of those 19 indicators were statistically different from pre-attack measures. In other words, the 9-11 attacks didn't put American Christians on a trajectory toward more orthodox beliefs or more consistent habits of prayer, church attendance, or scripture reading. Insofar as we can measure matters of faith, the decline of American religiosity continued apace, almost as quickly as the new perspective on life. Yancey saw in 2001, Americans turned away, back to trivialities and escalating um, uh, Differences like a dog returning, well, to its vomit. You'll find that in Proverbs twenty six eleven. I won't elaborate. Well, as a culture newly aware of mortality, we embrace the recklessness of YOLO, not to to care of mementos more. Well, spirituality speaking, uh, Barna, his uh, David Kinnaman said, it's as if nothing significant ever happened. Our memories are short, even though we vow never to forget. Still, the myth that the 9-11 attacks catalyzed a spiritual awakening lives on. A 2013 Barna Group survey found Americans, and particularly born-again Christians, believe 9-11 made people turn back to God. Well, that's probably true for a moment. But the human heart is a fickle thing. We, where were our hopes for ourselves, and why were they so wrong? Uh, why did we not live into our own ideals? I have no answers, or two answers rather, to suggest, and one reason to hope anew. Again, quoting from uh, Bonnie Kirsten, writing for Christianity Today. My first suggestion is that what we thought was hope wasn't hope at all. It was less Christian trust in the character and redemption of God than American optimism coded with not quite biblical bromides that that, uh, when there's bad, good will follow. Americans love to believe that everything happens for a reason, in quotes, and that after a short period of time, sorrow will always turn into joy and suffering into sanctification. We quote Romans 8.28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, and incorrectly interpret it to mean that everything that happens to us will somehow work out okay. But you have to read that scripture carefully, recognizing to whom it is making that promise. And it will on the eschatological scale. God promises that one day we will live in perfect joy and justice with him. And there will no longer be any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. You'll find that in Revelation, the 21st chapter, verse 4. 
But God doesn't promise us lives that reliably get nicer, either for us as individuals or even for our society. Sometimes evil happens and then just keeps on happening for centuries. Sometimes things don't work out okay and there's no perceptible reason for what happens to us. Nor does suffering naturally or automatically lead to growth or good outcomes, as pastor and author Tim Keller has observed. It must be handled properly or uh, faced patiently and faithfully. Well, a couple extra Sunday services in the fall of 2001 is not a commitment to the long, slow work of sanctification. The second answer to our disappointed hope is about how we preserved um, 9-11 in our memory. Never forget, we said over and over and up through today or Saturday. Part of what we meant was never forget the people we lost and the heroism of ordinary Americans who helped amid the horror. Yet another part was um, vengeance. In his September 2001 address, the president promised that American people, uh, he would not forget the wound to our country and those who inflicted it. He swore never to yield, rest or relent in the mission our country had found in our anger. Too many Americans, including some Christians, adopted this response in a vengeful way. We were right to be angry at the great wrongs of 9-11, but at some point, rehearsing that anger year after year doesn't move us toward justice, love, or the forgiveness Jesus commands of his followers. It moves us toward resentment, hostility, bitterness, with all the trouble it brings. How we remember is as important as that we remember, as theologian Uh, Wolf um, has argued, and we should discipline ourselves to remember both with a desire for knowing truth and with a desire for overcoming enmity and creating a communion in love. As we remember 9-11 again this year, it's not too late to change that memory. It is not too late to begin to seek the goods of unity and revival we wanted in 2001. We can still become more peaceable and prudent in our politics. We can still draw near to God and he will draw near to us. For now is the day of salvation, James 4, 8, and 2 Corinthians 6, 2 remind us. We can still learn real hope, not um, a historical American optimism, but the weightier hope that comes through perseverance, character, and the love of God. Let's hope that is the remnants of this 20th anniversary of remembering September eleventh, two 2001. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. 
Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.